Let's read from God's holy word together, Ezekiel chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophecy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Thank you, Larry. I hope you have your Bibles open. Uh, you're going to need to be in there. We're going to work our way through this passage. And before we get started, let me just say, um, to begin with, thank you to everybody who has poured out such kindness and condolences on our family for uh, most of you probably know that my mom unexpectedly passed away last week. And, um, but you know what? She got what she wanted. She is with the Lord right now. Here's what she prayed all the time. She would pray that she would die quickly, not linger and suffer. And secondly, that she would die at home and not in a nursing home. And God answered both of those prayers. She is in heaven with our Savior, with my Father, kind of weird having no earthly parents anymore. Don't any of you come up and say, I'll be your dad or your mom from now on. That just is awkward. Don't do that. But uh, I love my parents, and I uh, thank you to the, thank the Lord very much for them. Secondly, though, um, I have had a terrible head cold this last week. So if I am seeming a little bit more reserved today, then you'll know why, but i um, praying that I don't start coughing. With that cheery news, let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Viktor Frankl. I have mentioned him one time before, I think, in my memory at least, uh, in a sermon. Viktor Frankl wrote a book in 1946 called Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was caught and put into a Nazi concentration camp. And he survived. But in his experience, he learned what he put into this book. He developed an approach in counseling called logotherapy. And what he learned is this, that depending on whether a prisoner in one of those camps had hope, purpose, and meaning or not, determined how they fared. He said there were many who did not have hope, meaning, or purpose. In fact, the majority, and they would die. 
They would turn evil. They would become bitter, angry, jealous. Even though none of us had anything, they would steal and they would hoard what they could get. But then others did have hope and did have meaning and did have purpose. And they rose above all of them. They lived selflessly. They lived and did not fall into despair. And so really what we're talking about a lot today is hope, meaning, and especially purpose. And this is why we are beginning this four-part sermon series on the vision and the mission of our church with this sermon. The title or the snapshot of the series is multiplied to the third power. You're going to understand as we go why we're calling it that. If you want to boil down what our vision and our mission is, particularly our mission, it is multiplied to the third power. Today we're talking about multiplying worshipers. And do we have hope? Now let me take you to the Word of God. We are in Ezekiel. We're only in Ezekiel for this week. We will not be in Ezekiel next week. But we're looking at a prophet of God who was also a priest. And he was abducted by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And he was forced into exile, taken from Jerusalem along with thousands of Israelites who lost the battle with Babylon and taken 600 miles up north and east to modern-day Iraq and Iran, particularly Iraq. And that's where they are when this book was written. In fact, look at verse, uh, you don't have to look, you can look on the screen of Psalm 137. It says this, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. They're talking about, this is the exile, these, this is the group of exiles, these are the Israelites. They sat down and wept. Why? Because we remembered what we had. We remembered Jerusalem, Zion, on the willows, the trees, we, hang, we hung up our lyres, our instruments. For there are captors required of his songs. They would torment Israel, going, sing us some of your dirges. Sing, him, sing of some of your songs of your great God. Where was your God, by the way, when we defeated you? See, they had lost hope. They lost purpose. They lost meaning. They could not even sing. Have you ever gotten to that point, friends, honestly? Have you ever gotten to that point where you could not even sing? There was just no joy in your heart. That's the point of despair. And that's where they were. But then God raised up Ezekiel, a priest, a preacher, a prophet. And God commanded him, preach to the people in Babylon. Preach to my people. And what we're going to see today, and here is our outline. We're going to see three things. Number one, the condition of all people. Number two, the hope for God's people. And number three, the purpose for God's people. Here we go, number one, the condition of all people. We began uh, in our reading, or actually we ended in our reading in, verse, in chapter 37. We're going to begin there, though, now, because Ezekiel has a vision. He's not physically translocated to this valley that we're going to read about. He has a vision. In the Spirit of God, God opens his mind. Whether he is asleep or awake, I don't know. But he has a vision that the Lord gives him. 
He was brought out in the spirit of the Lord, verse 1, chapter 37, and set down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Now, if you've been in church for any kind of time, you've likely heard a sermon in this passage. It's very popular to preach. I'm going to hopefully apply it uniquely to us today as well. But before we look at this vision particularly, let me offer you a way to understand the words you're going to hear over the next four weeks, vision and mission. What is vision? What is mission? And here's what I would ask you to write down or try to memorize. It's very, very simple. Vision is the noun. Mission is the verb. Vision is the picture that forms when God makes it clear what you are to be. That's true for your family, your own personal life, and for your church. Vision is a noun. It is the picture that forms when God shows you. He reveals to you what he wants you to be. Mission, however, is a verb. It's the action. It's what must happen, what you must do, if the vision is to become a reality. Now, I want you to distinguish between the two of those and try to remember them throughout this series because I'm going to press both of them home as deeply as I can. The Lord showed Ezekiel a valley full of, of bones, verse 1. This is actually a picture of what Israel was. And the spirit, well, how does he know this? He's up on a ridge, up in a mountaintop, sees this valley full of bones. No, the spirit of God walks him down the valley, down into the valley. He led me around among them, verse 2. So here's a priest. By the way, a priest never would touch a bone. A priest never would touch a tomb or a grave marker because it would render them, they believed, ceremonially unclean. They would not be able to offer sacrifices in the temple. So Ezekiel is led by the Spirit in and around and among these bones. He gets a very close view, and what he sees is that there were very many, and they were very dry. All right, we'll get this firmly ensconced in your mind. These are not just dead People. There is not carrion birds eating flesh off of bones. No, there is no flesh. These are long dead bones. They are bleached white by the sun, brittle and dry. There is no life. In fact, they cannot be mistaken for having life. But whose bones were they? Verse 11. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now the point that is number one is the condition of all people. We're seeing that there are no exceptions. These are the bones of the whole house of Israel. And look what dry bones look like. Behold, they say, verse 11, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. God took the Israelites, two million of them, out of Egypt. And as he was leading them, he brought them into this valley. And on one side was the side of blessing, and on the other side was the side of cursing. 
And there were great throngs of people going back and forth. And the promise was this, if you obey my commands, you will receive my blessing. You will be full of life. But if you disobey my commands, if you turn away from me, you will be cut off. That is covenant language. It means you will be cursed. Your life will be under a curse. There will be no life. See, the vision is of the condition of Israel as a people. But it is also true of every single person who has ever lived. Like Israel, we have all been made for God. Now listen, don't skip the preposition for. Did you not notice that I said for God, not only by God? This is not so much, although we are, created by God. I'm trying to communicate. We are created for God. That's a very different thing to say. We are created for him. Meaning that if you do not live in that relationship that God created you for, you will be a sun-bleached, hopeless, despairing, meaningless set of bones. See, this is a condition of all people because Isaiah 53, 6 says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each to our own way. And when we turn away from what we were created for, it is as if you walk out into a desert of life and not long will it be before your joy and your hope dry up within your soul. Israel had lost hope. They were cut off. And Ezekiel was told to do something that is so odd, so strange, that we wonder, could this possibly be true? He was told to preach to the bones. Now, listen, I got to tell you something. Every pastor knows what it means to preach to dead bones. I have to believe that either on our online audience that's watching this or here in this sanctuary are some who have not yet turned to Jesus Christ. You are dead bones walking. That's not an insult. That's an autopsy, an x-ray of your soul. And Ezekiel was told to preach to them as I am preaching to you, to hopeless Israel, Ezekiel preached. And the Lord will, he said, verse 14, open up your graves and raise you from your graves. Now, friends, I'm going to now bring you into where we're going as a church, okay? This is really critically and of most importance. All of us, Christian, I'm speaking to you, every one of us needs to learn to preach. Does that mean you need to take a class on hermeneutics and exposition and the difference between exposition and iso, you know, exegesis and eisegesis, how to breathe in or breathe out? No, you don't need to do that. Not at all. You need to know the gospel. And you need to have the fearless audacity to proclaim it. Every one of us must learn to preach. Young or old, men, women, new Christian, old Christian, 
young person, it doesn't really matter. If you're in Christ, you need to learn to preach. But I don't mean from a pulpit. To preach from a pulpit means you've been anointed and called and appointed by God to do that. Not many people occupy the pulpit and don't feel like you're left out. Believe me, if you're not called, you don't want to be up here. But you're called to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The salvation is in Christ alone. You are called to proclaim that. And until you learn to do that, then people around you who are dry bones, who are dead men and dead women walking, cannot come to life because this is the way God brings life to spiritually dead people. Whether you like it or not, it is through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. Here's what Romans says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now watch this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now listen, you have people around you at work, in your neighbors, neighborhoods, in your schools, on your teams, and your families that are spiritually dead. Can you really go to your grave bearing the weight of never having declared the gospel to them? Can you do that? Why? You cannot talk them into spiritual life. You cannot just be a nice person and they come spiritually alive. You must declare the gospel. You must preach. You must have the boldness to tell them of the only one who could bring them to life. You see, if anyone is to be saved, they must hear the good news of Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. And when that living and active gospel is declared, blind eyes are opened, dry bones live, dead bodies rise from the grave, hope is restored. Now, how does that even work? We're about to look under the hood of salvation in point number two, the hope for all people. We looked at the condition for all people, now we see the hope for all people. You might be familiar with the sea shanty drunken sailor. I really like this uh, YouTube star, Melinda her and a group of people do the best version of Drunken Sailor I've ever seen. But the reason I'm talking about it is so that you can understand how the world operates. You see, this is the purpose. Here's the song, Drunken Sailor. Here's some of the lyrics. They've got a sailor that won't stop getting drunk. What are you going to do for that sailor? Well, they answer, should they shave his belly with a rusty razor? Should they put him in a longboat till he sobers? Maybe stick him in a scupper with a hosepipe bottom? I don't even know what a scupper is. Or put him in the bed with the captain's daughter? In other words, make him miserable enough to stop getting drunk. Is that really how you stop an alcoholic? You just make them miserable? Isn't that what you hear? They got to hit rock bottom? Listen, I see people all the time in my 30 years of ministry that hit rock bottom and then they go laterally to their next addiction. What's going to bring him up from the bottom? 
What's going to give them life? What's going to change their heart so that they don't want the idol of any addiction or anything that's driving them into despair? What's the answer? The answer is the gospel. Now, let me tell you what the gospel does versus the world. The best of the world works from the outside in. The best of the world works from the outside in. The gospel alone works from the inside out. You change the heart, you change the desires, and then you change the motivations, and you change how you live. Don't you see that's how the gospel works? Otherwise, it's moralism. Parents, you you understand this. If you've got young children and you tell them when they're doing something you don't want them to do, and you say, you need to stop doing that or there's going to be a punishment, you did absolutely nothing to redeem their hearts. All you did was manipulate their behavior. Do you not want a parent with the gospel? Do you not want a parent for life change and transformation? Then you bring them to the understanding and the despair of what they did, why their actions put Jesus on the cross. Walk them in their language to the hope in Jesus and the transforming power of faith and so that they can have a new heart to do new life. That's gospel parenting. You see, changing the heart is something only God can do, and we're going to peek under the hood and see how he does it. Look with me at chapter 36. Look at verse 22. It is not for your sake, God says, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. What's God saying? Here's what he's saying. Israel, you don't deserve what I'm going to do for you. This is not because you're such a good bunch of people that I'm going to work and save you out of this exile and give you hope and give you new hearts. No, I'm going to save you, not because you deserve it, but because I'm going to honor my name. My name is Yahweh. I am utterly faithful to my promises. You see, Israel had profaned that name. They had brought disgrace, just like we do, to God. They smeared his reputation to all the nations. Come on, this is what the nations were saying. This is Israel? Isn't their God Yahweh? Isn't he supposed to be so powerful? Didn't he overcome all the gods of Egypt? And he can't even get them to walk right. They go into their land and they get beat by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and Assyria before him. That God must be a puny God. That's how they brought his name into disgrace. So why would he do this? Why would God act? Verse 22. Because he would vindicate. He would clear his name, it says. Would he do it by destroying the unfaithful people of Israel? Or would he destroy us today when we are unfaithful? Does he hit the cosmic smite button when you don't live the way that you ought to? Thank God, no. He is gracious and his mercies are new every morning. But here's what he would do. He would change his people from the inside out. Let's watch it. Look at verse 22. I want you to just glance And if I were you, I would underline these. There's 10 times, 10 times from verses 22 through 32 that you see an I will statement that God makes. And you cannot come away from this passage with anything else but the clear understanding that salvation is all of God. No one, no one contributes to salvation. 
It says electing grace. He will deliver, verse 24, the believer from bondage. He will forgive the sins of those who believe, verse 25. Verse 26, God will give believers a new heart. He will make them alive to God in right living. Look at verse 27. His spirit will come into these new hearts. And what's he going to do? He's going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, the spirit of God, Christian, gives you the want to to do what you ought to. You can't even claim that's your own effort. See, none of this is our effort. All of this is of God, and he's going to return one day. And when he returns, he's going to set up a kingdom for a thousand years, a millennial reign, and all Israel will be saved. All believing Jews will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. That's the hope for God's people. They're sitting in Babylon in despair and meaninglessness. Ezekiel preaches the gospel He says, listen, here's what your God is going to do for you. And it's all of him. And their bones came to life. And flesh came on their bones. And breath entered them. And they became a people for God. Why did they knit themselves together? Absolutely not. God did all the work. That's the gospel. And that's the hope for God's people. And it leads us, finally, to our own purpose as a church today. Number, number three, the purpose for God's people. Now, let me take you back for a moment to Genesis, where God created human beings, Adam and Eve. And he said to them, Genesis 1.28, you'll see these on the screen. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. You know, I'm often telling moms who have babies and they come to the church for the first time after having their baby, maybe it's three weeks. I know we had one mom come the day after she gave, two days, the day after she got out of the hospital from giving birth, we were like, we gave her a trophy. It was amazing. But here's what we, here's what I tell moms all the time. When they have babies, I say, listen, I hope your next eight go just as well. And then I usually tell them, did you know that rabbits can get pregnant the same day they give birth. That's never received well. And I don't understand it because this is the the theology of God. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, God's favorite math is multiplication. Did you know that? All right, well, I know we got a lot of teachers in our church, and you're probably going, come on. I don't really believe that. (laughs) So now I have to convince you. Genesis 47, 27, Israel settled in the land of Egypt and, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Exodus 1, 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Moses later said to Israel in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God has multiplied you. And behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Isaiah declared, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And you might be thinking, okay, well, that's Old Testament. Let's get into the New Testament. And I don't think you're going to find that. Well, let's go to Acts 6, 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number 
number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 9, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. You see, God's favorite math is multiplication. The same, now here's what I want you to hear. And you're going to actually see this next week, literally in physical form. The same command that God gave Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. Now, you're listening to this because this is a bombshell. The same command, be fruitful and multiply, that he gave to Adam and Eve, he has renewed for the church today. Christian, you have the same command. Be fruitful and multiply. I'm not talking about children. I'm talking about leading dry bones to life. Thus says the Lord, Ezekiel 36, 37, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. Here's what God's saying. I'm going to let you pray and ask me for something, and I will promise you I will answer it. In fact, he invokes his name, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. You pray, Israel, and you ask, and I know you're sitting in Babylon and you have no hope, and you're a valley of dry bones, but I'm going to tell you your hope is in me. I'm going to bring you back to life, and I'm going to increase you like a flock do you know that that prayer is for us today? The vision and the mission for Cornerstone Church is built on the math of multiplication. God saves people and commands us to multiply by declaring the gospel of hope to the dry bones around us. See, perhaps you notice that the title of the sermon series is multiplied to the third power, the the vision, or the mission rather, what we are to do if the vision is going to be a reality is multiply worshipers, disciples, and churches. Today's message focuses on the first of those three, multiplying worshipers who gather together to celebrate and praise our great God. You see, God incredibly, this is so astounding to me. I've read this so many times in Ezekiel, I just cannot get over it. He invited Israel to pray and ask him to increase their people like a flock. But look at the kind of flock, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. Do you know what that means, friends? Well, I'll give you one example. Josephus was a Jewish historian that was hired by Rome, hired by Rome to encapsulate the history of Israel. He lived just after Jesus, not too long after Jesus. He says that on the day of Passover, one of the appointed feasts, they would sacrifice, listen to this, 260,000 lambs in the temple of God. 200, over a quarter of a million. And they all would be led in through the wall, through a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate. That's why it was aptly named. They would come in through the Sheep Gate and into one of the entrances of the temple to be sacrificed by the people of God for their sins. If you had a drone helicopter with a camera, it would look like some massive undulating carpet of white. 
That's the picture. Friends, listen, that's the picture that God gives these exiles, these dry bones, of what he will do if you ask. He promised he would increase them so much that even the cities of Jerusalem, all of those towns that were laid waste by Nebuchadnezzar and his army, that didn't even hardly have people in it, nothing but jackals and coyotes, they would be filled with his people. And what would happen? Verse 38, then they will know that I am Yahweh. I keep my promises. All right, there's a skeptic, I'm sure, in here or online going, well, that's a prayer for Israel. How do you know we can pray that? Well, don't you know the words of Jesus in Matthew 9? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What are we to do? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We pray that as we go out into the world as witnesses of Jesus to the end of the earth, many would come into the kingdom of God and into our church to worship our God with us. You see, here's what we're asking you to do. I'm going to make this very succinct in just a moment with three applicable instructions. But here's what we're asking you to do. Would you join us? in earnestly praying that God would increase his, our, his people among us. Now listen, not just Cornerstone. I'm friends with Ebenezer. I'm friends with Calvary. I'm friends with the Alliance Church, with Forks Community, the Bridge, all kinds of churches in this area. The pastors know each other. We know when you leave Cornerstone and go to one of them, And we know when you leave one of them and come here. Here's what we're asking. Would you earnestly pray that God would increase his people? Listen, not by transferring people from one church to the other. That's how most churches grow. No. That dead, spiritually dead, dry bones people would hear the gospel from us from you, from me, and come to life. And God raise them from the grave and bring them into a church, Cornerstone, or one of the ones that I mentioned, so that they can grow up in Jesus. Would you pray earnestly for that? Not for our church's glory, not for any church's glory, but for God's glory, that they would know that I am the Lord. Well, here's what we're asking you to do, very succinctly. Three things as I close. Number one, pray. I'm going to ask you, will you raise your hand if you promise to do this? And I'm asking you to promise on God's grace. You ask God to help you hold your promise. Don't be an oath breaker. If you will raise your hand online as well, that you will faithfully, earnestly pray, God, increase your people in the Lehigh Valley so that the waste cities are filled with your people, so that churches are filled with your worshipers. If you will earnestly pray for that, would you raise your hand right now? Do not be an oath breaker. Now listen, let me say something, and I'm going to ask for you to bear up under this, please. Know my heart. If you will not pray that, I don't think this is the church for you. 
I don't think this is where you belong. We don't need stragglers. We don't need anchors that are going to hold us back. There's probably a different church for you. And I say that with no joy, period. But I want people here, I want me to be praying that prayer and to trust God. He gives us the bold audacity to pray it. But if you're going to pray it and not do number two, then you are hopelessly ignorant. And I mean that in the best use of the word, without knowledge. Number two is, will you declare? Will you preach? Will you proclaim the gospel? See, if you're asking God to bring an increase and you're not willing to declare the gospel, the only means for spiritually dead people to come to life, aren't you asking God to do something that he won't do? He's going to be echoing in your soul. I will be glad to do this because it's going to be bringing fame to me. But you got to get declaring. you got to get bold. you got to be audacious. Don't you know there's dry bones walking all around you and all around me? What's holding you back? What are you afraid of? Do you really want on your conscience to leave this earth and not having given hope to anybody? You got to declare. You pray audaciously. You declare faithfully. And third and finally, you serve. Look at verse 38 again as I close. What kind of a flock is it that we see? It's a flock for sacrifices. Friends, do you understand what we're praying for? We're praying, God, increase your people, the ones who will die for you, who would be willing to die for you, and listen, much harder, be willing to live for you. They'll sacrifice They'll serve. Do you know that's the number one meaning of the word worship is to serve? God, increase your people like a flock. Let us declare the gospel to the dry bones around us so that they can come in and learn to serve and worship our great God. Pray, declare, and serve. Multiply to the third power. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this powerful passage. But it's so hope-inspiring. Lord, may we be a people, Lord, that quits playing around with Christianity. Lord, that gets serious with our faith. We are here for a reason. There is a reason that you did not save us and bring us straight into glory. Lord, you put us here for a purpose. And that purpose is to lead dry bones to life. And the way we do it is to pray, declare, and serve. You are a great God. May you gain great glory from Cornerstone. And Lord, I pray that every single person that wants to be at this church would faithfully, audaciously pray that prayer, boldly declare, and serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.